Even if New Year's resolutions aren't your thing, there's something about closing the book on the previous 365 days that brings new aspirations into focus. For many, those aspirations center on improved fitness. And while it sounds simple enough, the reality can be a little more confusing. After all, fitness can mean different things to different people, and deciding where and how to start can be a challenge. That's where experts like Dr. Elizabeth Hubbard come in. An exercise psychophysiologist in UNT's Department of Kinesiology, Health Promotion, and Recreation, she teaches exercise testing and prescription, as well as behavioral change strategies and health promotion. The co-director of the Behavioral Neuroscience Research Lab, Hubbard's research expertise is in developing physiologically potent interventions to improve fitness, neurological function, and brain health in both clinical and aging populations. A former soccer player, Dr. Hubbard became interested in how exercise affects the brain when she was finishing up her master's degree at the University of South Florida. From personal experience, she knew she often thought better and felt happier after exercise. So she decided to explore the topic further as a PhD student at the University of Illinois. I worked with Dr. Rob Model and Brad Sutton there, and we um, were looking at kind of the effects that exercise and fitness can have on um, different clinical outcomes in people with multiple sclerosis. So that's just kind of one way that you can look at how exercise affects the brain is looking at people that have neurological disorders and how exercise can help them with, you know, their certain outcomes, but also, you know, physical outcomes in their walking or their performance um, or their fitness, but also with their mood and, you know, how they're feeling about themselves and, and with their disorder. And that's kind of, I really like to combine the psychological component with the physiological component, which confuses scientists sometimes because you're usually one or the other. Um, and I like to look at both. I like to find um, exercise interventions that are uh, kind of practicing that physiologically intense moment in your life, which could be, you know, running after your grandkids, or it could just be getting to the bathroom. It depends on where you are in your life. And so practicing, practicing that in exercise, but then also seeing how we can implement it and make it fun for people um, at the same time. On this episode of UNT Pod, join me, Erin Cristales, as I talk with Dr. Hubbard about how to start or restart a fitness routine, how to best set yourself up for success, and how to reap the mental and physical benefits of whatever activity you find most appealing. You know, it seems like kind of in a more general sense when it comes to fitness, January is one of those times when people really kind of start reconsidering their fitness routine, um, whether it's tied to a resolution or just this promise of kind of a fresh start. Mm -hmm. You know, what, what are some of the key considerations before beginning a new fitness regimen? And are those considerations different for those who are brand new to fitness versus those who may have previous experience with training? When it comes to, you know, starting or restarting a physical activity, you know, regimen or intervention, um, it doesn't really matter if you're new or if you have experience. I think the steps are relatively similar. If you're coming from a standpoint of, I had a break, I haven't been exercising and I want to get back to, into it. And so the first thing you want to do really is a risk assessment. And so 
there's the physical activity um, readiness questionnaire, the PARQ, which is very popular and you can find it for free online, but it essentially just asks you questions about kind of your, your risk of cardiovascular um, incident if you start engaging in exercise. And it kind of um, lets you know whether you should um, talk to your doctor before beginning exercise or whether you are good to go for engaging in kind of light to moderate intensity activity. And so I always suggest that people kind of take one of those questionnaires or talk to their primary care physician before they start something new or get back into something new. After that, what I generally suggest coming from a teaching exercise testing and prescription standpoint is to do an initial assessment, right? So that can be super scary to people, I think, to maybe, you know, like walk a mile and see how fast you can walk it or run it or do kind of a you know, if you're getting into resistance training, doing some sort of max, maximal resistance um, test, but that really is just a number. And I think that's what's important is you wanna kind of just see where you are so that you can make a goal or see where you can get to. Um, and so after that initial assessment, you kind of take that and then you would start by setting a goal. Um, and you can either do that with a professional or with your doctor or with yourself. Um, and I like to use SMART goals, which I'm sure people have heard about before, but SMART goals, um, it's an acronym for uh, specific, measurable, action-oriented, realistic, and time-based. Um, and then the ACSM or American College of Sports Medicine has kind of added another S, which is um, I think self-regulated is what they've said it, uh, at the end. So essentially when you're making this goal, a lot of people will say, I wanna be fitter or I wanna be healthy, and what does that even mean, right? So we have to figure out what that means to the person or to yourself. And so you want it to be very specific. And I like to kind of focus on both the behavior itself and then the outcome. And so if you're trying to do better at aerobic fitness and you wanna be able to you know, walk a mile in 20 minutes, then you would say that in order to walk a mile in 10 minutes in a month, four weeks, I'm going to walk for 30 minutes every day, uh, two to three times a week or something like that. So like, it just gets very specific about like, what do I want to get to? And what am I doing right now or every day to get me there? Um, and so then you wanna be able to measure it so that if you're if you're looking at every day, like you can tick off, did I do this thing or not? Did I do my 30 minutes of walking today? Yes or no? Um, Action-oriented again is kind of that behavior. Realistic is one of those things is that a lot of people also will kind of have weight loss goals or something like that. And a weight loss goal, if you think, you know, losing, 20 pounds in two weeks is realistic, we might need to kind of back that up a little bit, right? So the ACSM recommends losing one to two pounds per week, which is a calorie or energy deficit of 500 to 1,000 calories per day. Um, so kind of making sure that we're realistic in our goals and then having those time um, kind of components. So short-term, every day, this is what I'm gonna do. And then long-term, this is where I wanna get to. Well, you know, I'm wondering for people who may think, oh my gosh, I don't even know where to start with SMART goals. I don't feel comfortable, you know, doing a risk analysis with the PARQ mm -hmm. myself. 
are there benefits to maybe, you know, um, seeking out a personal trainer or someone with more experience who can maybe guide you in, in those goals and in kind of measuring your success? I definitely would recommend that. Um, you know, your first, your first person can definitely be your, your primary care physician, although they only spend about, you know, two to three, maybe four weeks on exercise in med school. So the next best step from there is, you know, getting someone that I usually recommend the American College of Sports Medicine um, certified personal trainer or the exercise physiologist. Um, if you're a healthy individual, if you're kind of a more clinical population, then there are uh, clinical exercise physiologists that are certified through the ACSM or the National Strength and Conditioning Association has individuals that are certified strength and conditioning specialists. I'm one of those um, as well. And so what I think can be helpful is that those individuals do specialize in exercise and they have both knowledge of what um, the guidelines are for your particular situation. They can help you kind of um, decide what your overall goals are, and then they can help you kind of be that social support to check in on you. How are you doing? And so if you don't have the, the funds for a personal trainer, you know, three times a week, maybe just meeting with them once to help you make a program can be good. Um, I know that there's a lot of information online out there, but I think getting someone that you can speak one-on-one -on -one to, whether it's over Zoom or FaceTime or something so they can know kind of your particular situation and help you problem solve can be really helpful and important. Um, and that's what a lot of our students at UNT are kind of going towards. They might become um, physical therapists or occupational therapists, you know, they might be going to med school, but if they're coming from our department, we at least know that they have that knowledge that they can, you know, work with clients of different ranges and they have the knowledge to be able to kind of prescribe that exercise to them and help them achieve their goals. So I definitely think there's some validity and, and practical knowledge that those kinds of experts can give to you above and beyond what you can find kind of on the internet. You know, there are so many different types of exercise out there. It it can kind of be hard sometimes to figure out what's the best approach to number one, meeting those specific fitness goals that you've set. And then two, developing a routine that you actually enjoy and can be consistent with. Mm -hmm. So how can, how can people best define those goals, whether it's improved cardiovascular health, muscular endurance, flexibility, you know, et cetera, and then figure mm -hmm. out the appropriate exercises to help them achieve their goals. Yeah. So, um, I would say generally where you can start for that goal is meeting the ACSM guidelines for healthy populations or your particular population. That's the best kind of starting point. These guidelines are developed by a board of scientists that um, identify kind of this is the, the dose, the amount that you would need to get general health benefits. And so in terms of cardiovascular fitness, um, those recently changed to now it's 150 minutes per uh, week of physical activity that's of moderate to vigorous intensity. And those can be accrued in 10 minute bouts, which is really exciting because it used to be, oh, it needs to be 30 minutes, three to five times per week. And I think that was really scary for people. So um, scientists were recognizing that if it can be in 10 minute bursts. So if you're, you know, on, UNT's campus and you're going from one side of campus to the other, 
try walking a little faster until you couldn't really carry on a conversation. That 10 minutes will help you get to that um, kind of cardiovascular fitness or activity goal. Um, and recognizing that taking little pieces here and there during the day can be just as beneficial as hitting the gym for an hour every day. Um, and so that's the cardiovascular um, or aerobic fitness guideline according to the ACSM for um, the modality. You can be walking, you can be running, you can be cycling, kind of arm cycling if um, you know you have joint problems or leg issues. So any kind of kind of repetitive aerobic activity can be beneficial and helpful for meeting that particular goal. Uh, the next, the strength kind of outcomes goal, there's muscular strength and muscular endurance. And in general, the ACSM recommends that you engage in strength training two to three times per week, um, hitting all of your major muscle groups. Um, and that would be kind of in a set and rep of at least um, uh, it's eight to 12 um, repetitions. Um, and, you know, you can start off with just one set and move up from there. And so kind of looking at those general recommendations is helpful. I would say starting off, people don't, some people love machines, some people don't like machines, but if you're not used to strength training, I think those machines are great because they have, you know, diagrams on the side that let you know kind of where to start and what muscles you should be using. And they're also developed to improve safety. Um, so starting with machines at the gym on the floor is, is a good um, thing in my uh, opinion. And then you can kind of move from there to dumbbells, barbells, and the more intense kind of resistance training if you want. Um, and it can even be as simple as body weight exercises. That is resistance training. You're just using your body weight um, as the resistance. So, you know, doing push-ups or modified push-ups or squats or modified squats, everything can be modified. Um, to meet you and your abilities. And I think that's kind of the nice thing that we're getting to know as scientists is that we can change from the old kind of 1980s aerobics. You have to be jumping around wearing, you know, sweatbands and leg warmers to be a fitness guru. Um, now we can do it in our everyday lives, in our living rooms, wherever we can. Um, and the last one is flexibility. And I think a lot of people may not remember that flexibility is kind of a component of exercise. And so that again is kind of stretching out your major muscle groups two to three times per week. So integrating that into your life, however you can. And so I'd say that if you're not sure where to start, I think starting with let's, you know, our goal should be to start meeting those ACSM guidelines. And then once you can meet those ex exercise guidelines consistently, so that's over maybe six weeks or so, um, you can start to progress. Progression activities are a little trickier and it depends on so many different components that if you're getting to that progression stage, like you wanna start pushing yourself a little bit more, that's where you might wanna see your ACSM certified personal trainer um, or exercise physiologist and they can help you kind of personalize that, give you different cycles, help you improve um, based on your preferences, your strengths and your limitations. Um, and then the last thing I would say is if you're finding it hard to kind of fit these activities in, try combining activities, right? So make your, your cardio or your strength or your flexibility kind of part of a social activity, uh, maybe in person or on the phone, call somebody on the phone while you're walking across campus and you're, you know, trying to push yourself. So yeah, you're breathing a little hard, but at least you're still talking to someone. Um, 
you can make stretching a part of maybe a bedtime routine or it could be a morning routine of yoga. And so just kind of trying to find little ways to make it fit into what I'm assuming is a busy schedule because it seems like all of us are busy these days. You know, it's, sometimes it can seem like just walking into the gym is the hardest part because sometimes it seems like there's this sort of fitness stereotype that exists. Like, you know, if you're going to be fit, you have to look like a fitness magazine cover model. Mm -hmm. um, what would you say is the best way to define fitness that encompasses and embraces all different body types and fitness modalities? Yeah, this is a wonderful question. I'm really excited to talk about it. Um, just because the only thing you can ever tell about a person by looking at them, even somebody that's on a magazine, is what they look like. That's all you can tell. Um, body shapes really give no indication of health or fitness, period, full stop. Um, it's very important to me as that we as a society and kind of exercise scientists shift away from promoting exercise for its aesthetic benefits. Sure, you can get some from exercising and that's great if that's what you're looking for. Um, but I really believe that we should be use exercise to celebrate your body and what it can do for you. Um, and so sure, you may not be able to run as fast as you used to or lift as much as you could when you were in college, but you can chase after your grandkids and you can help make dinner. Um, and those are things that should be celebrated and exercise should be the celebration of what you can still do and what your body can do in the future and what you can push it towards. Um, so we only have one body and one mind and we should definitely take care of it. Um, and being physically active and engaging in exercise can help us take care of that body and that mind. Um, so the definition of fitness that I like is one that, again, is from the American College of Sports Medicine, and it's really just physical fitness is the ability to carry out daily tasks with vigor and alertness without undue fatigue and with ample energy so that you can enjoy those everyday activities without kind of unforeseen emergencies happening. And so, like I kind of talked about before, we have different components of fitness, and those are aerobic fitness muscular strength, muscular endurance, flexibility, and body composition is also the last one. So body composition is there, but it's not the only thing that we should be considering. Um, and body composition is also something that you can't tell by just looking at somebody. Um, and so I think if we start to recognize that there are many different components of fitness, and most of them kind of the, the combination of all of them is that it's our ability to do the things we want to do every day with the energy that we have and need and want to be able to do those activities. Well, you know, when it comes to fitness, you tend to hear a lot about training, but mm -hmm. not always as much about recovery, um, which of course involves taking time to rest your body after exercise. Mm -hmm. Can you talk about the importance of recovery days? Because it, sometimes it feels like mentally it's very hard to take those if you're kind of in the zone, right? But what are some mm -hmm. strategies for effective recovery and for mentally preparing yourself for those days off? Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, recovery days are, are very important with at least one day per week of maybe active recovery or light movements. And the, the recovery day really just gives your body time to kind of shore up its reserves and its resources so that it can 
um, use those again when you're in your heavy exercise days. Um, I would say if you are someone who wants to always be moving and be active and you're really motivated and it's difficult to take that recovery day, then you can of course make it an active recovery day. So light activity. So you're still getting out there. You're still doing something, but it's not, you're not breathing hard, right? You can carry on a conversation the whole time. Your heart rate stays relatively low. Um, I would say that in general, when it comes to recovery, a single day isn't as important, uh, in my opinion, than it is to talk about sleep. Um, so sleep happens every night and it's when your body does the most work in terms of recovery, physiologically and psychologically. Um, so during the night, that's when, you know, our body is, if you did a resistance training activity, that's when your body is doing a lot of muscle protein synthesis and building it back up. And then, you know, kind of working on shuttling some of our resources back to, you know, our brain and also using our liver to help send some glucose back to our muscles if it needs it. Um, and so also as we're sleeping is when our brains kind of take, take a little break and they, they kind of filter through all of the memories that we have through the day and they decide what to keep and what to let go of. Um, and so sleeping the recommended amount of, you know, on average eight hours per night is important for me personally, I need nine hours of sleep of night. It really gets difficult because that's a lot of time and time that people don't necessarily devote to sleeping, but I know that that's the amount that my body needs to be recovered both mentally and physically. Well, you know, just like with anything else, there are some weeks that are better than others um, when it comes to fitness and certainly times when you may see fewer results. What are some mental strategies to kind of break through those days or even weeks when you may feel like you're not making enough progress? Yeah, I think that's a great question. Um, in most of my research, I use social cognitive theory as a, a framework behind getting individuals involved and excited about exercise. And one of the main tenets of social cognitive theory is self-efficacy, and that's your belief in your ability to carry out that activity. So I think, you know, when you start your, your exercise journey, thinking about like, do I think I can actually do this? Um, can I actually exercise for 30 minutes a day? And if you don't think you can, you know, bring that goal back, right? So if you find every day that you're not able to kind of get out there and, and do what you think you can do because you have a mental block or some sort of problem that gets involved, let's, let's re reassess those goals. Um, after that, I think the next important thing to do is to self-monitor how you're doing every day. So we set our goal, it's, you know, it's measurable, it's specific. Let's make sure that we're writing down what we're doing every day. So you can use an app, you can use MyFitnessPal, it's free. You can, you know, I, I love a pen and paper calendar in my bathroom, just, you know, like a big X, I did it or I didn't do it. Or you can get really detailed with, this is what my heart rate was. This is how far I went. This is how much I lifted, depending on where you are, right? And I think something that really helps is that if you've been doing something for three weeks and you're like, oh, this day was so hard, or I just can't do it today. Looking back at like what you're telling yourself over those other days where you thought it was hard and what got you out the door to get going. So in addition to those kind of hard data points, I also like to put 
kind of a, a feeling or an emotion or an affect at the end of the day, like after I finished my activity, like this felt really great, or it was really hard to start, but once I got, you know, two minutes in, it felt okay. And then I felt really good afterwards. And so you're telling yourself through this kind of journal and logging how you felt during it, how you felt after it and how it helped yourself. So I think that that self-monitoring journaling kind of piece can be really beneficial when you feel stuck or you don't want to start. Um, the other thing I really like using is kind of sticky notes that have self-affirmations on them. They can remind you of you know, what your goal is, or maybe your favorite, you know, character in a novel or in a movie, you know, what they, what they say to, to motivate them and spur them on. I think that can be really helpful um, to see that, you know, next to your alarm clock, if you're waking up really early or when you're leaving the office or something like that to go work out just as a physical reminder of what you're doing. And you can use other ways of physical reminders of if you are waking up early so you can go exercise and it's hard to get out of bed, literally put your shoes and your exercise clothes like right next to your bed. So you just have to like fumble through to put it on and then get out the door, you know, so those physical reminders can really spur you on like, I planned this last night. I guess I really need to go do it now. Well, as an exercise physiologist, you develop evidence-based and ecologically valid exercise interventions aimed at improving physiological and psychological outcomes for older adults and also for individuals with neurological disorders uh, such as MS. Can you talk about what considerations go into developing those interventions and which interventions you have found to be especially effective for those with neurological disorders as well as for those who are older? Yeah, sure. So my research primarily focuses on adapting exercise modalities to ensure that we're getting to the appropriate physiological intensity um, in these different neurological populations. Um, so there's a lot of data out there in persons with MS, but also older adults um, that, you know, higher levels of fitness are associated with better brain health and better physical, you know, kind of cardiovascular fitness related outcomes. Um, so excuse me, clinical outcomes. So higher, uh, fitness is associated with greater physical clinical outcomes, like walking, um, assessments and activities of daily living. I try to use low volume, high intensity interval training, which um, this is kind of the prescription of, I do one minute at a high intensity and then one minute at a low intensity and they interchange those for 20 minutes. Um, and that would help you get to kind of the ACSM recommendations. And it would be only 30 minutes long in length because there'd be a five minute warm up and a five minute cool down. And so I'm kind of using that overall exercise prescription and then adapting the modality to make sure that these individuals can participate uh, in the intervention. And so during my, um, dissertation work and my PhD, um, I saw that as I was engaging in kind of exercise interventions in people with MS that using this recumbent stepper, which is like a seated elliptical that you kind of can use your arms and your legs to push and pull, um, that my individuals who had walking impairment were able to reach a higher heart rate when they were using that recumbent stepper as opposed to using a cycle ergometer or walking on a treadmill. 
And so I wanted to see if we can put individuals with MS who have walking impairment onto this recumbent stepper and see if they can do high intensity interval training or HIT, which most people, when they look at me, think I'm insane because HIT seems very scary, right? You know, it's high intensity and it's interval training. I can't ask these people who have, you know, a clinical neurological impairment to do this. I'm like, of course they can. Um, and so my dissertation research identified that um, people with MS with walking impairment are able to complete hit on a recumbent stepper without um, any adverse events. It was all safe. Um, participants were able to do the prescribed intensity and it was physiologically more taxing than moderate intensity continuous exercise using the same uh, recumbent stepper, but there weren't any deleterious effects to core temperature or um, maintained uh, negative aspects to their walking or mood or affect after the exercise. So we kind of saw that they can do this. So let's try to see if we can do it over um, a 12-week study. So I'm currently funded through the National MS Society um, to fund a 12-week exercise intervention using this prescription to see if we can get any overall fitness improvements in addition to improvements in walking or depressive symptoms or um, kind of neurological disability status and those kinds of things. And then with Older adults in general, um, that's kind of the other half of my research. Um, there's a lot of data out there identifying that exercise is healthy, is beneficial for psychological outcomes like decreased levels of depression and anxiety. Um, it's associated with improved um, overall physical performance and walking outcomes. It's also associated with um, kind of slowing declines in cognition over time in older adults. Um, and so that's one of the things that I'm interested in is looking at how um, HIT using a walking-based modality in older adults um, that have early stage dementia and looking at um, HIT in kind of a uh, caregiving dyad. So looking at individuals that have early stage dementia with their caregiver and having them exercise together, doing HIT, walking-based HIT using ratings of perceived exertion to look at their overall exercise intensity. Um, ratings of perceived exertion are essentially me just asking, how hard are you working? And prescribing the exercise based on a scale of zero to 10 with zero being nothing at all, 10 being as hard as you've ever worked running from a lion, and so during HIT sessions in general, you'd be doing one minute kind of at an eight or nine and coming back to one minute at a three or four and then interchanging that back and forth. Um, and so my research so far um, identified looking at kind of that same subjective measurement of intensity on a treadmill versus objective measurements on a treadmill, which is using heart rate and seeing if um, they compare in older adults and in healthy older adults, there wasn't a significant difference in internal load like heart rate and external load like speed or incline. Um, so my, one of my students and I are 
kind of looking at data to see over a 12 week um, intervention in older adults that was walking based either on an indoor or outdoor track, whether we saw any improvements in fitness or other kind of walking balance mobility assessments and cognition in older adults, but I don't have those data yet. So overall, there is a lot of data to support the benefits of exercise, um, both physically and psychologically in these neurological populations. And so my research is extending that by looking at how can we kind of get to a um, peak benefit of by using high intensity interval training so that shortens the overall time, but also gets our body to get used to that change in intensity. And that's where we really see benefits both in our aerobic systems and our anaerobic systems, which is what we use kind of to get up out of our chair and go to the bathroom and come back down. That's a change in intensity. So we're kind of practicing again that change so that we can do it when we need to. Well, you've mentioned a lot of the mental benefits when it comes to exercise. And, you know, I feel like a lot of times when it comes to strength training, there's this talk of developing a mind muscle connection. And I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about that sort of mental physical connection that happens and why it's important. Yeah, I mean, I think that the reason why I study the brain is because the brain is essentially in charge of everything, right? <laughs> it's in charge of our breathing, it's in charge of our capacity to lift things, to go running and all of those kinds of activities. So in general, um, there are both cognitive and psychological benefits to engaging in aerobic activity in particular. When it comes to strength training, there's not as much um, data to support kind of the, the overall benefits. That's not to say that they aren't there, but it just hasn't been studied as much. Um, and I'm not as familiar with that literature. But in general, um, there are cognitive benefits from engaging in exercise, such as um, improvements in overall executive functioning, which is one of those things that generally declines as we continue to age. So that's things like decision-making, um, make, making lists, planning ahead. Um, and so by engaging in exercise, you're actually kind of improving your capacity to be able to engage in those activities. Um, there's also data to support the psychological benefits for overall anxiety and feelings of depression. And I think that no matter what exercise you pick, it can be particularly important, especially now that we're all in this global trauma of COVID-19 pandemic, in that by moving our bodies physically, we're also helping ourselves psychologically at the same time. Um, and so we're, when we're better able to deliver oxygen throughout our body and deliver nutrients like glucose around our body because we're engaging in exercise, we're better able to deliver those components to our brain as well. And if we're delivering oxygen and glucose to our brain, then our brain is happy and we feel better. Um, so the more that we can engage in the kinds of activities that can kind of promote both physical and psychological help, you know, the better that that can improve our overall quality of life. What would you say to anyone who's still maybe feeling a little bit trepidatious about starting a fitness routine? Like Nike says, like, you know, just do it any way that you can. Um, figure out what you like. Um, 
One of the other things that we haven't really discussed yet, but is just as important is um, our sitting behavior. Um, and so if we can sit less and we can move more, I think that can be just as beneficial. So if, you know, engaging in aerobic activity or resistance training or even flexibility seems to, you know, scary or aggressive right now, think about just sitting less, you know, so maybe every hour try to get up and walk around for five minutes, you know, around your house or just, you know, around your neighborhood or something like that. Um, a lot of the kind of fitness watches nowadays will buzz at you if you've been sitting for too long and sitting is now considered the new smoking and it's associated with um, increased risk of morbidity and mortality. So that means, you know, dying earlier and getting sicker more. And so if we can kind of reduce sitting, that can also be super important. Um, if you're still stuck and you really do want to get active again, um, anything is better than nothing. I think that's, that's one of the great things about where we're moving in science is that just get up and go do something, whatever it is will be beneficial. And it's better than just sitting, you know, in front of the TV. Um, also finding ways that you enjoy being active. You know, if your hobby is knitting or painting or reading, those are generally sedentary activities. And I would never say to take away from those activities, but try to find some other activity where you can do it simultaneously, or you can talk on the phone and walk around. So find that thing that you like. Um, and then again, just take it one day at a time. You can take it one minute at a time if you want. When I do hit myself every, you know, of those 20 minutes, 10 of them are the high intervals. And I take each minute at a time, you know, just get through this one minute, you can do it and kind of writing down and practicing that self-talk is really important as well, because a lot of us get negative inside of our own heads. And so practicing, you know, talking to yourself, like you're talking to your best friend. So being kind to yourself is important as well. Um, and recognizing that things will happen. So, you know, if, you, if it didn't happen yesterday, then it's going to happen today. Um, and if it didn't happen today, let's make sure it happens tomorrow. Tell somebody else that it's going to happen tomorrow so that you, you know, have that accountability. Um, and I think kind of chopping things up so they seem less scary and just recognizing that, you know, it's okay. You're, you know, how you look, what your fitness looks like. It's not a reflection of how you are as a human, you know, or your value as a human or your worth as a human. Um, but it is something that can help you live longer and can make you happier. And so reminding yourself of kind of those outcomes can hopefully make it something that's more enticing for you to engage in. Thank you for listening to the first episode of UNT Pod season three. You can check out episodes from previous seasons wherever you listen to podcasts. And don't forget to follow us on Twitter and TikTok at UNT Social and on Instagram at UNT. Until next time, be safe.